on this little phone, you get a subscription. You think you've got a subscription with company A. You've actually got at least 200 subscriptions. It's absolutely seamless. In fact, when it's not seamless, in one, in one case, we start screaming, hey, it's not seamless. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I am joined by my partner in crime, Chris Sands. Yeah, nice to be back on the street. Great to be with you. And I have to say today on Canusa Street, the PhDs outnumber the mere mortals. Uh, You yourself, as a leading scholar in Canada-US relations, are joined by two other phenomenal scholars. I'm excited about uh, the conversation we're going to have, and I'm excited for you to tee it up for us. Uh, but but I want to say the what we're talking about today, what got me thinking about it anyway, is connectivity. How connected over the last couple of years uh, we have all been during the pandemic and how some people haven't been connected. Remote learning at schools depended on whether or not you had, you know, reliable Wi-Fi. And so what we'd like to talk about today is what does connectivity look like? What are the policies underpinning broadband, connectivity, telecom, all of that in Canada and the United States? How do they differ? How are they similar? What could be better? And we really have two spectacular experts, one from each side of the border, as is our custom on Canusa Street. So Chris, why don't I turn it over to you to properly introduce our esteemed guests? Thanks, Scotty. We've got two amazing guests. Dr. Thomas Hazlett holds the H.H. McCauley Endowed Chair in Economics at Clemson and has been conducting research in the field of law and economics, specializing in the information economy. Uh, And that has included, very germane to today's topic, an analysis of markets and regulation in telecoms, media, and the Internet. He, He previously served as chief economist of the Federal Communications Commission here in Washington and has held faculty positions at the University of California, Davis, Columbia University, the Wharton School, and just outside D.C., the George Mason University School of Law. So, uh, uh, welcome to, to you, Tom. And we also have with us Dr. Jeffrey Church. And Dr. Church has a PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley and has a BA honors in economics from the University of Calgary. I think the same school that graduated uh, Stephen Harper with a degree in economics, although uh, I assume uh, you stayed with this topic at least a little bit longer. Uh, he was in 1995-96 the T.D. McDonald Chair in Industrial Economics at the Canadian Competition Bureau, and his published research includes articles on merger simulation, network economics, strategic competition, entry deterrence, intellectual property rights, and competition policy. He's the co-author of a book on the regulation of natural gas pipelines in Canada, very hot topic these days, and a text on industrial organization and a monograph for the European Commission on the Competitive Impacts of Vertical and Conglomerate Mergers. I feel like I have my homework and my summer reading all at once. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Church, and let's get this conversation started. Thanks, Chris. Let's go. Let's get right into it. And we're pretty wonky here sometimes on Canusa Street, so if it's okay with with our guests, I'm I'm just going to dig right into it. One, One of the things I have learned in the preparation for talking about telecom policy, talking about connectivity, is a lot of it has to do with what's known as spectrum auctions. And so maybe for Dr. Hazlett, for you, Tom, at the beginning, you've you've worked on auction design, as they call it, at the Federal Communication 
Commission, Federal Communications Commission in the early days of spectrum auctions. What what exactly are those and why are, why do governments use them as a policy tool when it comes to this? Uh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. And, and thanks for that uh, sort of warm up question. If I could, I'll just go back to the very start of this thing. Uh, governments uh, stepped in with some rules when about 100 years ago, uh, people figured out how to communicate wirelessly. And uh, there are obvious uh, questions about uh, who can transmit and uh, what kinds of technologies can be used and uh, how you uh, limit uh, uh, chaos and promote coordination. And originally, uh, the uh, standard for regulation in the US and Canada and, and uh, uh, everywhere else essentially uh, was to uh, have regulators uh, craft very specific licenses that told uh, particular parties, the licensees, exactly what they could do, what technology, what service, what business model. And uh, th these uh, choices would be made by uh, administrators who would say, we're, we're planning the market so that uh, the people don't interfere with each other and, and everything comes out correctly. Well, uh, yeah, I was, uh, as has been called of other programs, an incomplete success. That is to say, there was a lot of rigidity to that system. It, it stifled innovation um, when cellular uh, actually became a thing, which uh, many are surprised to find out actually happened at the end of World War II. It took essentially 40 years for that regulatory system to even authorize airwaves to make that service a possibility. So what's happened in recent decades is, is a very pronounced liberalization all over the world where administrators have stepped back and instead of trying to tell the market exactly what to do, they have allowed different companies to claim bandwidth. In other words, to get uh, kind of a specified uh, area of radio spectrum uh, defined in, in, in uh, uh, the uh, airwave space uh, bandwidth. And um, the more progressive way of doing that that developed uh, finally in the 1990s was to have an auction uh, where companies that thought they could make the highest uh, and best use would uh, submit bids and uh, the um, regulators would take the highest bids for particular uh, tranches of this uh, very valuable natural resource called radio spectrum. So how rapidly now, there's still this regulatory holdup in the sense that when new technologies uh, come to market and when entrepreneurs try to deploy them, uh, they still have to go to the government and ask permission. They have to get more access to spectrum. And so every technology upgrade from uh, the original analog cellular, which was called 1G first generation, to our current iteration of 5G fifth generation, which does not just voice, of course, but data and text and video, and is extremely important, exactly as you suggest, in a social sense. We see it uh, very much in the shutdowns from the pandemic, uh, that we go to wireless uh, to uh, really um, uh, create a, you know, a social uh, communications uh, opportunity that is, is now fundamental to our um, economic life. And um, this, this is tied up with how regulators put bandwidth in the market and allow the, uh, the distribution. And in countries that are forward looking like Canada and the United States, um, this is done by a competitive bidding process. Thanks, thanks for that. That's a helpful primer for us. And, and, and Jeff, let me turn to you and, and ask you to talk about what, how is Canada's policy with respect to spectrum 
auctions, if it had, you know, similar and different. I My impression is we're recording this in the end of February 2022. I think Canada is going through a a process uh, of looking at its auction policy. Maybe I don't quite have that right, but can you talk to us a little bit about uh, sort of the view from north of the border and how how it might be similar or different to what Tom just talked about? Right. So um, yes, good afternoon, I guess, um, and thank you for um, letting me participate in this um, podcast. Um, in your first ever podcast, can we say that for our listeners? This is quite exciting. First ever podcast, um, and so you know, I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to uh, lead the discussion. And uh, I'm especially delighted to appear with Tom because when I think spectrum. I think, and I would have said Hazlitt, so I've already learned something today, that it's Hazlitt. Um, and so uh, that's good. Uh, and so Canada is always a bit behind the United States. On lots of things we're a bit behind. Um, and one of them is auctions. Um, but we eventually followed the United States and and have used auctions to allocate spectrum for um for mobile services in Canada. For, so for wireless services in Canada, we, we've used auctions. Um, and I think we've done that since 2008. Um, and one of the things that we've done that is a little bit different is that we use something called set-asides. And so we have this idea that um, we should be using um, spectrum allocation and setting aside some amount of the spectrum so that we can encourage competition in wireless services. Um, and so, um, you know, at the same time we have the auction, we have the set-asides. And so the set-asides are essentially we've got two groups. Uh, we divide the spectrum that we're going to sell that the government's going to auction off into two groups. And we restrict bidders of one of those groups to be new entrants. They can't be the three big incumbents who are providing services. So only eligible bidders can bid on the set-aside um, spectrum. And so that means we're excluding the big three wireless companies, Telus, Bell, and Rogers. Um, and the idea is to reserve this spectrum so that we can uh, make sure that these new entrants get access to it so that they can enter the market and provide services and, and increase competition. And we've done this in 2008, when I said in the first one, we, we set aside 40% of the spectrum. In 2015, we set aside 60% of the spectrum. 2019, 43% of the spectrum. We just had an auction in 2021. We set aside 42% of the spectrum as a set aside for these new auctions. And as you pointed out, Scotty, we're just comments were due last week on um, a consultation process for the latest tranche of spectrum, the 3,800 megahertz um, stuff that we're putting out um, for a new auction, I guess, sometime this year or perhaps early next year. And you know, in the consultation, the government is again proposing a set aside. This time it's only 20%. Um, for for the new entrance, um, so you know uh, it's controversial. Uh, every time we do this, there is a incredible um, bun fight uh, on the policy thing. We cut down lots of trees, and people like write lots of things about it, and nothing changes. Um, it's interesting. I went back and looked, and you know one of the first things that I did involve involved in this um, conversation was a report for Rogers in 2010 arguing why we shouldn't be using set-asides um, for the 700 megahertz auction at, at that point. So the, the incumbents are very um, opposed to this. Um, they think it's a large subsidy for their competitors. And they um, one of the things that they really dislike about it is that the way the rules are set up, that the new entrants can bid on the non-set-aside spectrum, even though there is set-aside spectrum you know, essentially where they have free shot to, um, very little competition for it. And what they do is they bid up the price 
for uh, the incumbents, um, even though they don't end up buying it. And so that really uh, causes um, some controversy among the incumbents. And then there, there are huge price differentials that are established because of this. Um, in the 600 megahertz auction, for instance, Rogers and Talus paid you know, something like $2 per, per mega, megahertz population. Megahertz pop is what it's called. The regional providers who got the set-asides paid 80 cents, right? Like a half of it. Some calculations indicate that the total amount that the government gets from the um, set-aside spectrum is like $5 billion less than what they could have got if they had an open auction and allowed everyone to participate. So that's one of the things that we do that's very different from what the United States has done. Um, in fact, it's very different than what most countries in the world do is with this set-aside spectrum to increase competition. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting, Jeff. Does it, does, let me just ask you this, does the policy goal that you just articulated for having these set-asides, does it, does it end up inuring to the benefit of consumers? Like if the, you said the goal is to increase competition as a, you know, money-grubbing American capitalist, I'd say competition is probably a good thing. Does it, does it end up, I, I mean, my, my anecdotal sense is that it's pretty it's pretty expensive. My, your your cellular bill is pretty expensive in Canada, but I pay in the U.S. So, does the policy to, does the stated goal accomplish the purpose? Because you, I just heard you say gov the government loses money that it otherwise would have gotten, but do consumers at least benefit? Or what's your what's your analysis of that or your view of that? And so, I mean, I think that's that's so the benefits of this, the justification for this policy really rest on, on two things, right? So one is that we have a market power problem that we don't think that there's sufficient competition among the three incumbents, um, leading, as you might suggest, to higher prices relative to costs than we should be paying. Um, and then the second part of it is, is that we think that the set-asides would actually solve that problem or, or reduce the extent of that problem. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting question about, is there a market power problem in Canada? Um, and I, I think that, you know, there, there are a bunch of measures that we can do to try and assess whether there's a market power problem, you know, so, so there's a reason for the set-asides. Um, you know, we can talk about some of those um, later if you want, but I guess my assessment would be that there's not really very good evidence that we have a market power problem. So, that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of an interesting market where the technology has extensive economies of scope and, and scale, so it's, it's costs go down the bigger you are. And you also have to spend a lot of money in capital equipment to, you know, to make that radio access network work, the towers and the lines and spectrum and all the rest of it. So you've got huge amounts of fixed costs, which mean that there's gonna be a limit on how many providers you can have. It's not gonna be like wheat farmers where there's thousands and thousands of them. You're gonna have a limited number of networks. Um, and then they're going to have to earn what look like hefty variable profit margins to pay for all those fixed costs. So when you go to diagnose whether there's a market power problem, it's come with some, some of the traditional things that we do to look for market power. They often give us false positives. They don't give us a very accurate signal. So we expect the market to be concentrated. We expect there to be only a handful of suppliers we shouldn't necessarily infer that that means that they are earning monopoly profits and exercising monopoly power. They might well be earning competitive rates of return. So you can't just count competitors in this type of of of, um, of market. That's really helpful. And and uh, I'm going to write down uh, megahertz pop for, uh, I, I'm still <laughs> catching up to K-pop, but uh, maybe if I can work my way up to megahertz pop, that will be great. 
Um, Tom Hazlett, I wanted to ask you about, in addition to the auction, if I'm right, there's also a coverage obligation sometimes put on someone using Spectrum, particularly for high cost areas or, or rural areas. Can you talk a little bit about how that operates in, in the U.S.? Let me uh, get to coverage in, in a second, too. I, I just had something in, in terms of the U.S. experience I was hoping to touch on that uh, came on this last question about, you know, how, how the consumers benefit uh, from, yeah, from the set-asides. And, um, yeah, with all due respect, I mean, Jeff says that uh, Canada is, you know, behind the U.S. I, I, I don't know, in, in, in hockey or beer or beaver, you know, hockey, beer, and beaver, I think you guys are ahead. But uh, um, the, uh, you know, the policies have been similar, the, the, similar but different. And the set-asides have been more pronounced in, in radio spectrum uh, in Canada. I agree with that completely. But the U.S. has had its own uh, stumbles in this area, and they're very instructive. And um, uh, going back to um, uh, the early days of what was called 2G, second generation, or digital wireless, uh, the United States uh, tried to favor entrants in the auctions by giving them extra bidding credits and um, uh, and 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 uh, cheap credit to to bid long term loans at uh, at low interest, and that turned out to be a disaster. The so called uh, C block fiasco that lasted a decade. I wrote a paper on the actual social losses for this. Uh, they they uh, reached about ten uh, billion dollars a year because we took Spectrum off the market. Uh, not intentionally, the intentions were good. It was a set aside for a small business. And uh, yet the government uh, pursued this in a way that nobody ended up defending. Uh, it, it really did end up in bankruptcy court. The United States government was tied up in litigation for a decade. The point is, if you take radio spectrum off the market and don't allow it to go to its highest valued use, say in brutal competition between three or four wireless competitors that actually are serving the public, you're going to do something very, very bad to the market. You're going to constrain it. You're going to have much higher prices. You're going to have less service. And you're going to have less service in these outlying areas, certainly. That's very important. So it goes right into these coverage obligations. And um, the coverage obligations uh, try in a regulatory way uh, to say, if you're going to serve a particular uh, geographic area, you've got to get 70% uh, of that covered uh, for service in the first uh, five years, some, something like this, you know, depending upon the circumstance. And you have to have 85%, you know, at, the, at seven years. And then, you know, by 10 years, you've got to have 95% or whatnot. Now, what this is, is it's trying to have some kind of regulatory restriction that you can't serve the populated areas which are more lucrative for the obvious reason of economies of scale uh, and, and not serve the outlying areas. There are other ways to do that, many, uh, many better ways to do it. And one of it is just to put more spectrum out there and have more competition and even competition between the same number of providers. The, the, the more radio spectrum they have, the, the, it actually the cheaper it makes it to actually serve those outlying areas. And that is, is something that has been lost in a lot of this uh, the other side of it is that the coverage obligations are very ineffective, and anybody inside the system will tell you that. That is to say, what determines coverage? Well, we have coverage. Just try to get, you know, just try to get a, uh, try to get one bar. Try to get two bars. Okay, we've got coverage everywhere. You've seen the maps. There's a difference between the map and actual usage, and uh, for regulators to actually police 
you know, 30 million mobile subscribers and how, you know, how actively they're getting signals throughout the day and how, what the quality of those signals, you know, the speed of the signals, if you're on a data connection, that's something that's just too onerous for, for, you know, a regulatory agency with a few hundred employees. It's just, it's, it's not even close uh, to being a realistic uh, option. So there have been these coverage obligations that have been observed mostly in the breach. And um, the better way to go about this is to get lots of spectrum out quickly, try to get it out at low cost. That's the whole point here. It's an input, not an output. You're not, you can't go to the world and say, look at how much we got for our spectrum. Actually, some people do that, some regulators. In fact, India, I just to, to pick a, a random example there, they're terrible on this. They, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a developing country that really needs more broadband and wireless is the way to do it. And they brag about how, how, how little spectrum they put out and how much they get for it when they go to auction. And that's completely upside down, but it shows you that regulators can be completely inimical to the interests of the public uh, by, by thinking that some of these regulatory approaches are gonna be better than actually focusing on the output, which is what comes uh, to the customer in terms of not just the old voice services, of course, but now wireless broadband. And so that really has to be the objective in a, in a you know, pro-consumer, pro-social order. This is taking me back to my days in, in economics uh, class. And I, I wanna ask you a little bit about the nature of these kinds of industries where there is a build out of infrastructure and capacity. And so the regulatory model tries to compensate for that early build out by uh, letting people make perhaps a bigger return on that investment early on. And I, I wonder with the talk in Washington and, and even in Ottawa about infrastructure investment and people talk about broadband and extending things to different parts of the country, what's the role of public capital and and regulatory incentive in getting the build out that uh, that we need to help people in may, maybe rural and less served areas get access to to the system yeah well <laughs> you've just asked the 65 billion dollar question for the US because we had an infrastructure bill last year that poured 65 billion dollars in the subsidies um, uh, ostensibly to help develop broadband in the rural areas. Now, it, it, it seemed not to be noticed. I did write a Wall Street Journal piece explaining this um, a few months ago that the um, the fact is the US since the 1996 Telecommunications Act has already spent nearly, I mean, nearly a quarter of a trillion dollars on these subsidies. And it's very difficult to see where we've expanded the, the reach of broadband in anything close to a cost-effective basis. Um, and uh, we've, we've just made mistake after mistake. We've, we've given subsidies to firms that weren't providing service. There have been, in many cases, criminal charges filed and, and lots of corruption you know, has been in the system. So the oversight, that's really a metric on the oversight of the system. It's not really uh, playing very well. We have to focus on ways to get the competitive market to figure this out better. And so that's why things like easy policies, like getting more spectrum out quickly to a number of competitive players makes a lot of sense. In those pockets where there is a difficult problem, sure, you, uh, you will, the political system will consider some kind of a subsidy scheme to target some kind of extra development, but it has to be very careful to analyze those results. And again, make sure that the money 
is not going to, for example, multiple players now in the U.S. We're actually subsidizing multiple, like a, a fixed a fixed wire company, a wireless company, another wireless company. If, if you're going to do a provider of last resort, you obviously should have one of those. You should have low prices paid to that provider on an efficient basis. Now, the good news is that some of the what's a nice word carping by economists over over the over the decades <laughs> did result um i should say criticism by economists uh, has resulted in some forward motion in our system and a few years ago we adopted what are called reverse auctions and so now the um in some cases so unfortunately it's only sort of in the experimental phase and they're only doing about 10% of the program, and this is prior to the new big infrastructure bill, uh, but they have a proof of concept now. That is to say, if you have some, say, rural area that has very poor broadband, and the government objective is to take some public funding to improve that, what you want to do is you want to have a competitive environment where all the different technologies can compete and make an offer and say, look, I will serve that area at 25 uh, megabits uh, per second for downloads. I don't know if that's a technical term. Most uh, broadband users know 25 is pretty good because you can you know, stream uh, high definition movies and so multiple movies at that speed and so forth. But um, whatever the, I'm not saying that should be the standard, whatever the standard is, will allow all the technologies, including fixed wireless, mobile wireless, fixed wire and satellite, and whatever else somebody wants to come up with, allow the technology to compete and then take the lowest bid. Now, it has to be a responsible bid. There is also a regulatory overhead issue that, uh, you know, we, we, you know, you don't want to go off into here. I don't want to go off into here. Um, you know, God forbid. But uh, there's a lot of complexity there. But the, the, the high level story is that we've already done this. Again, proof of concept. And in some cases, we find that there can be a 90 percent price decrease in what the new providers are offering when you allow this competition between technologies. And of course, the most exciting part of this right now is satellite is coming up big time because of improvements in technology and these small modules that are being able to launch uh, into space uh, in a whole, you know, constellations of thousands of satellites. And of course, Starlink uh, is probably the most famous with SpaceX. There's a competition between multiple satellite providers and these terrestrial providers. And so that is driving costs down. And there should be that mixed. It should not be the government figuring out one technology and going with that and that, uh, or God forbid, one technology and then piling other technologies on top and having multiple duplicative subsidies in exactly the same area. That's, that's a, really a recipe for uh, the companies and the stockholders running away with the money and, and, and consumers getting the shaft. Oh, th th thank you. Um, uh, very helpful. And I want to kind of pivot now to Jeff uh, Church to talk a little bit of, first about how that works in Canada. You know, to some extent, what's the public investment doing? Is it adding value? Is it displacing private capital, et cetera? And you know, you have indigenous communities who are politically meritorious to reach, but also very costly to reach because they're low density and, and, and sort of give us an insight into how that looks in Canada. But if I'm then going to also ask both of you about something that that back in 2016, the OECD in their annual uh, Economic Survey of Canada pointed out, which is that the United States, Canada, and Mexico are among the worst countries in dealing with network industries, where you're trying to build out a network, you provide that concessionary benefit, but then we end up with these oligopolies that 
actually don't provide great service and we it's almost like the infant industry argument. We we give them an incentive to get started, and that makes sense. But we never then take away that that benefit, and so we end up with spoiled brats, not infant industries. But Jeff Church, Chris, 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 I might have to argue with you on the oligopoly, but we'll but that'll be another podcast <laughs> where where we invite some of them on. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, I may have to take a sick day on that one. But anyway, Jeff Church, go for it. So the first bit. I mean, we we have these coverage obligations, as as Tom has already talked about, with our um, in our auction. You know, the, the people who win the licenses have those kinds of things, and we have those same same kind of obligations um, to roll out. Um, I mean, part of the problem that we have is that the size of the licenses um, and the way that we have these obligations uh, give firms an incentive to roll it out in populated areas and not unpopulated areas and because the geographic region is so large and you've got some obligation to serve some percentage of the population. Um, you don't necessarily have to hit the rural areas. So some people would argue that the licenses are too large. The geographic uh, geography of the licenses is, is too large. We've also seen, though not nearly to the extent of um, the infrastructure bill in the United States would, you know, our politicians will periodically trot out, here's a billion dollars or some other relatively small amount um, where we're going to, you know, uh, advance um, broadband or high-speed internet uh, of some sort to some community. And so we, we certainly do that. Um, you know, I, I guess what's interesting about Canada is that if you look at our coverage levels in terms of, you know, wireless service for LTA and um, you know, kind of the, the standards that the government thinks or the regulator thinks are acceptable for upload and uploading and downloading. Our coverage in terms of population basis is very good because Canadians actually live mostly in cities, right? Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, on that, on that respect, it's very good. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not aware of kind of the innovations that Tom is talking about in terms of using reverse auction to, to deal with these providers of last resort. Certainly, I can remember, you know, 25 years ago when we dealt with this with you know, just copper wires, we had very large subsidies built into the, the to the rates that the telephone companies charge high urban um, prices so they could subsidize the provision of rural um, telephony. And then we moved to more of a portable, um, you know, we, we identified um, high cost service areas and we put a tax essentially on everybody's bill. And then that was used to subsidize, hopefully, the provision of one network, not competing networks. I can remember a policy debate about that, but I'm pretty sure that we decided that it would be sufficient to have one network and um, it would be good if we had the, the low cost network. Um, so that's good. You know, coming to the other question about the oligopoly and that, you know, the infant industry argument, I mean, I, I think that that is actually nonsense uh, when it comes to telecom in Canada. Um, you know, I, I think our three providers, and I'm going to sound like an apologist for the industry now, but I mean, we are world leaders in terms of the speeds of our networks, the investment that we've made. I mean, we have very high quality networks, both on the broadband side and on the wireless side, and we're typically industry leaders on these things. And that's despite the fact that our government is a bit slow in allocating spectrum, and we seem to always be behind the Americans in terms of repurposing spectrum from existing uses to wireless uh, telephony uses. Um, and we seem to do, do it in a way that's particularly high cost for our incumbents as opposed to the new entrants, which is the set-aside problem. Yeah, when you said that the OECD singled out Canada and the U.S. Uh, as being uh, substandard and how we deal with oligopolies, my, my, in my uh, in my mind, my my words were, well, I find the OECD substandard in analyzing oligopoly. Um, <laughs> look, 
the OECD does does a lot of very useful stuff, and I use some of their data uh, quite regularly. But uh, uh, their their approach to this uh, misses the mark. Uh, on, on, you know, obviously, there's a debate amongst the people who pay attention to this. And uh, you know, as I say, you, you got to take the good and then 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 be critical where where appropriate. And uh, the fact is that um, the U.S. and Canada actually do pretty well in the rankings uh, when you when you take quality and coverage into account. And I just was actually while you were talking here too, just looking at the right now as we as we sit, um, you know, a lot of people would say that the U.S. is very much behind in broadband internationally. And if you look at average speeds, which which uh, again is, is is not a single metric. Sometimes it's used that way in, in OECD reports and elsewhere. But uh, the United States is ninth in the world in average broadband speed uh, of download, according to Speed Test, which is a global network that, that gets a lot of data from a lot of countries. And the Canada comes in 21. Well, um, you know, uh, we could all do better. But uh, the fact is that, uh, you know, the, the United States uh, basically does better than all the large countries of of, of Europe. Um, and uh, Canada uh, does better than South Korea or Taiwan or uh, France and, uh, you know, and Finland and other countries that actually have a pretty successful infrastructure. Uh, in terms of wireless, um, the United States is, is 21st, 21st in speed. This is just in speed. Uh, and our coverage tends to be pretty good. Now, 5G, the race is on. We have multiple um, uh, networks that are building out fairly quickly. But uh, it also bears noting where the innovation comes from. Uh, the broadband, the mass market broadband service came from the United States. And it wasn't just that internet development was, was ahead of elsewhere. It was the fact that we had competition between cable and telephony. The old telecommunications uh, were um, uh, supposed to bring broadband to the home and in fact, uh, they had the old uh, uh, regulated monopolies, the public utility uh, local exchange carriers, and they had Bell Labs, and they had very good technology, you know, way back in the 80s and 90s, and we were waiting for it. Um, uh, and, and, and while we were doing that, the United States allowed the cable operators who were unregulated uh, to jump into the market, and they did by the late 90s. That's where broadband of the home really comes from, and that spurred a reaction by the regulated carriers. And then we deregulated those carriers so that, that you know, th th those uh, companies could go at it. Now, when you're going to talk about an oligopoly market, well, this would certainly qualify in the minds of most. You had you really had two wires to the home. And uh, now we've got wireless that's in the mix. That's that's a very nice competitive addition. But 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 some of these countries that are uh, alleged to not handle oligopoly very well have been on the cutting edge of allowing these uh, these carriers to actually compete with new technologies and um, innovative uh, business models. And that's exactly where we got broadband of the home from. And, um, you know, the race is on. Canada and the U.S. are doing okay in terms of their, uh, the state of the art of their networks. And uh, we can always do better. That's what we're talking about here. Well, you know, that's really interesting. Let me, I can't let this conversation end um, without asking you guys to weigh in on a related question when we're talking about our infrastructure and our competitive advantage and innovation and all of that. And that's the question of Huawei. Um, you know, our listeners may know that Huawei is a, is a Chinese uh, company that builds a lot of infrastructure around the world. And there's been some controversy about whether or not we should allow uh, an adversarial uh, country like China to be able to um, have such critical infrastructure in um, in, in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe. And that's been in the news, you know, a fair amount over the last couple of years. So I wonder if both of you 
could just opine a little bit on that. Tom, do you want to go first? Why don't you go first, Jeff? <laughs> That's not an easy question. It's not an easy question. And, and in Canada, as uh, I think I have my facts correct here. I think that we've been kind of sitting on the fence, right? That we actually don't have uh, a statement by the government that says that it's not going to be allowed, unlike some other countries. But I think because we've just ragged the puck so long and delayed actually making a decision which would offend the Chinese, our, um, our providers have decided that they will uh, going forward, anyhow, they seem to be very reluctant to adopt any uh, Huawei technology. Um, and, you know, the, the Chinese are fighting hard, right? They are the prime sponsor of Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday night. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, there's there's quite a public relations battle about exactly that issue. As, as an economist, I guess, you know, we, we like to think that the cost minimizing solution would be to would be the right solution. And if that involves using the Chinese technology, I guess that fine but maybe in the long run that's uh that's not the right way to think about the costs right that the costs may be much larger in the long run um and that the short run benefit here may not uh, actually be appropriate yeah i have a hard time giving you a, a straight answer on this um uh well it's a straight answer but it's not uh, maybe a clear one um and uh on the one side i'm very suspicious of government efforts to uh engage in protectionism against competition from foreign firms and um it's you know to block huawei uh obviously lessens competition in the market as a, a at a first pass and the question is well um you know is, is huawei and the chinese government um in some combination is that are they sufficiently bad actors to, to merit this and um i've seen i've seen both sides of it in the united states there was actually a government um, uh, blockage of a merger that had nothing to do with Huawei uh, between Broadcom and Qualcomm. And it was um, uh, the sort of thing that you fear is going to be um, pursued as policy on a pretext. Uh, the flip side of it is, is that, you know, the Chinese government is doing a lot to be, you know, to, to be a bad actor. And um, so it's, it's not as if there's nothing there. Uh, so, uh, you know, I can't uh, give you a definitive answer as to, you know, what our policy should be on Huawei. Obviously, if there is theft of technology, I want those cases pursued. I mean, the, 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 the preeminent argument against Huawei is that they steal, not, you know, I mean, they, they can be checked, you know, for, for secret backdoors and they can be, obviously, every technology and every uh, system should be tested for security and uh, uh, made robust and, um, you know, checked again. Um, and uh, you know maybe a third time from uh, from China, but uh, the um, the charges uh, that Huawei uh, has been a bad actor in terms of uh, industrial espionage. I would like to see those cases brought. There have been some some uh, measures there, and I'd, I'd I'd really like instead of having a tariff barrier or some kind of a, a trade prohibition, I would like to see the intellectual property uh, pursued directly. And I'd also like to see the security current, uh, concerns addressed directly, you know, against Huawei and other firms, certainly Chinese and non-Chinese, uh, because we're we're in an era where security of these systems um, uh, is 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 absolutely crucial to uh, you know to to the health of our our economies. Yeah, I think there's a lot there, and Chris, we may have to have a whole a whole segment thinking about um, competition with China, whether it's critical minerals. 
uh, and rare earths processing or on on other strategic areas like this. Let me, if I could, just ask one more question and then I'll turn it over to Chris. And, and also, you guys are welcome to jump in with anything else you think we haven't asked and we should have. Um, but I, I want to go back, to, Tom, to something that you said, and I'd like you and Jeff to both talk about it. Um, as we think about how uh, innovations have occurred over our lifetimes, you know, from wired, wireless, cable, all of that. You mentioned satellites and constellations of satellites. And, you know, I'm reminded, I, I've had the great privilege and fortune to go to Canada's north several times. And a funny thing, and I haven't been in the last couple of years, because I haven't been anywhere in the last couple of years. Thank you, pandemic. <laughs> um, but what's what's odd to me, as an American going to the north, going to the Arctic in Canada, um, with Canadians, my cell service worked pretty well up there. Um, AT&T, Verizon, the U.S. carriers seem to have agreements with all the Canadian carriers so that wherever you are regionally in Canada, you can, you know, your phone works, right? Um, you have to figure out how you're going to pay for it and, and all of that, but that's that's figure outable, as we say. But several Canadians uh, that I would travel with couldn't get their phones to work uh, in in the north, and it was because they were on one particular carrier that didn't have a deal with whatever that carrier was. And I wonder why why that is. Like how how what kind of a fluke is that in sort of the policy design that that me as the interloper had good connectivity and my colleagues, the home team, didn't. I don't know if, uh, but what everyone said at the time was the answer to all kinds of communications issues in the north is constellation of satellites. So we're we're getting there. That's and again, that's a whole other conversation about security of satellites and space debris and vulnerabilities in space and how you deal with that, but um we can't cover all that now. But uh the, our listeners can't see it, but Jeff has a very ponderous look on his face. I can see it cuz we're recording on Zoom. But Jeff, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Um that whole connection issue for uh communities up north? I don't actually, and that's why I have this. I'm trying to think about whether I have anything sensible to say about that, um, and I don't. I, I know that on a policy front and a regulatory front, um, there's always been this discussion about roaming by the new entrants outside of their home networks and what kind of the obligations are that the three, the big three, have vis-a-vis -vis the the new entrants customers. Um, and I certainly know that. You know, Canadians and Americans go across the border all the time. Um, we go to, to Florida to see the sunshine. You come north to see the, the snow, I guess. Um, or and the northern 24 hours of sun, 24 hours of sunshine in the in the in the summertime. Um, and, and so certainly the, the the roaming arrangements between the big three in Canada and the big carriers in the United States, you know, kind of make the, uh, an integrated North American network. And I mean, it's been a, a an issue with our new entrants about how they kind of break into that and whether they're discriminated against. On, on that side or not. And we certainly had regulatory proceedings which have tried to address that to make sure that there's seamless roaming. Um, and um, obviously it's not entirely successful <laughs> in certain instances. Um, but I, I understand it's very costly, right? I mean, one of the things that's, that our, our regulator just ruled it last year was that there was to be no, this kind of seamless roaming. So when you were a new entrant on a network and you went outside of the footprint of that, your home carrier's network, that the call was supposed to be um, handed off to the incumbents network. And before that, we didn't have that. It would drop and you'd have to call again because the incumbent said it was very costly for them to do that kind of handless, handless trade-off. I mean, you, you could do your call again after you dropped off and you would be on the incumbents network and it would work fine, but it would be interrupted. 
um, and our regulator, yeah. uh, you know, mandated that last year um, over the objections of the big three because of the cost of doing so. Well, and, and I can't, I just have to jump in here. There, There is an actual Canusa Street. There are actually a couple, but there's one in northern Vermont, in Derby, Vermont, which is connected to Stansted, Quebec. And, you know, that's the famous opera house that half of it's in Canada, half is in the U.S., the library, et cetera, et cetera, the Haskell Library or Haskell Opera House. And if you go to that, and I have family up there and we go there as, as often as we can. And it's 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 always concerning when you're still in the United States, you get up there right around to the real Canusa Street and it, and your phone tells you, welcome to Canada, and now you're being charged uh, international roaming. And then you say, oh, dear God, that's not what I meant. <laughs> so it's, it's integrated, but it's not quite perfect yet in terms of... Uh, the phone knowing exactly where you are and which side of the border. Yeah, if I could, if I could jump in, I'm you. Right. You, you baited, you baited my hook. I have to swim. I have to swim to the bait now, because uh, this, this, uh, this, this is a, a, a wonderful question, and it, and it brings up the the old adage: you don't, you don't see how something's working till it breaks. And so, when, when you're looking around, and you know, you can get the signal just fine, and 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 your, and your colleagues are having trouble. You say, well, what what's the problem there? Well, I take it. From precisely the opposite end, and I, and that's I, I started by saying, you know, that in, in the early days, a century ago, and and even a lot less than that ago, the regulatory approach in spectrum was to say, you know, it's really too complicated for people in the marketplace. Stuff we've got very specific in what we allow any broadcaster to do. When we give out a broadcasting license. That's it. They can broadcast at one particular geographic location at a certain power level using a given technology and a business model that's in their license, and they can't deviate from that. And we've gone so far in this world. Now, on this little phone, you get a subscription. You think you've got a subscription with company A. You've actually got at least 200 subscriptions because they've got... And that's just for radio spectrum access. All over the world, they have agreements. Okay, they put it together to you. It's absolutely seamless. In fact, when it's not seamless, in one in one case of a thousand, we start screaming, hey, it's not seamless. But you can go almost anywhere in the world and use your phone. And yeah, you'll get charged on some kind of a, a rate. You know, it's not free, but that's what exactly what you're paying for. And by the way, there are more than 1 million applications at the App Store. There are only over a million and a half applications in the Google Play Store that are wireless and go on your wireless device and they all interfere with each other. Whether it be your YouTube videos that you're watching there and I've got my angry birds here and somebody else is sending texts, you know, texts to their kids. We're all interfering with each other. That was supposed to be too complicated for the market to handle. That's why it was very specific and everything else was excluded. It could only be what was explicitly permitted. And that world flipped over the last few decades to a world in which these carriers are just given these rights and then they say, we'll figure it out. And when you see that in one case they didn't figure it out, and by the way, you had to go to the North Pole. I don't know, I think <laughs> you should have asked Santa. Okay, you know, or the penguins, they know how to get, get on. The beluga whales, yeah, yeah they communicate whales. really well. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. they got their transmitters. So. Um, the point is that this is an extremely complex task. There is absolutely no question in anybody's mind who's thought seriously about it that the old system could have given us what we have today. 
And seeing the, the, the logic of the carriers providing service to customers in a competitive environment where they give you the package and they tell you, judge us based on our performance, not what goes into it because you wouldn't understand it anyway. We really don't. We've got to deal with all, all these thousands, if not millions of suppliers and developers and infrastructure companies and technology device makers. All of that stuff comes together in a competitive ecosystem that is, when you think about what we had in 1980, it is, and that's not far ago to some of us, uh, that is phenomenal. And, it, and, it, and it's, of course, going to be very different in another 40 years. We know that because we're going to have all these uh, ways of innovation come in. And as long as we supply the spectrum, and allow for the liberalization to, to continue forward with obviously social oversight at some antitrust and, and regulatory level that uh, is part of the system, you're going to have tremendous progress again. And if people can come up with better ways to tweak that and you know to get service, whether it be the North Pole or anywhere else, yes, that you know that that's going to be a step forward. But to, to understand how that system got here. And what you're actually dealing with is absolutely element, uh, elementary, I think, for, for figuring out where the best next step is. Well, yeah. And Tom, in my defense, I wasn't saying it didn't work at all. I was saying like in, in our little compare and contrast seminar uh, discussion we're having today, my system, my American system worked in the Canadian North and the Canadian system didn't. That was kind of like the, the interesting thing. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't that nobody's worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway. Well, of course, when I go to Canada, I can get online with my with my phone fairly automatically, and and uh, and we actually shop. We our family just switched our family plan, and I'm taking a lot of heat from my wife because she can't get more than one bar uh, sometimes, and so now that's my fault. You see, that's now it's uh, that's switched. Right. You see, it's switched. <laughs> it's switched from the marketplace and the carrier to me, so I, I got to take the hit on that one. But um, th this is this is this is the mix we're in, and uh, believe me, regulators, uh, you know, they had their shot. And um, um, in in the book I wrote, here's plug time: uh, the political spectrum, 2017, uh, the tumultuous liberation of wireless technologies from Herbert Hoover to the smartphone. Um, I, I I do talk about uh, the way it used to be when, uh, for example, FM radio was a great innovation uh, in the 1930s, and in fact, the inventor of FM radio. Uh, with all the problems he had getting an allocation out of the FCC and and actually putting his dream into the market and and it was it was a great dream it was a it was a killer application people loved FM radio and how beautiful it was compared to AM radio well he ended up killing himself over the fact that it was stifled and stymied for over 20 years by the FCC spectrum allocation and it was a very very different world then now when some innovator like Steve Jobs says I you know, these cell phones are terrible. I want to have a beautiful device. He literally doesn't have to ask permission from the regulator. He goes to the marketplace and effectively contracts for Spectrum. He contracts with the carriers. And that's how your devices get, get online, through a market process. And so it's, it, from there, the complexity just rolls. And I, I, I do challenge people to think about what all we've been able to achieve with this and then get a handle on that before they think about how we're going to extend and, and improve that system. I'm, I'm sure there are ways to do it. There are always, there's always an evolution of rules that adjust to every new um, era in technology. And, uh, but we've got to get, you know, we've got to get our arms around the fact of uh, the complexity that we're dealing with today. Well, that's it. 
This is one of those uh, conversations that makes you think differently about a lot of things. And, and Scotty, uh, it's even made me think differently about Canusa Street because, uh, like you, I always thought it was the, the Haskell Opera House. And now I'm wondering if it's the Haskell Opera House. Uh, I could have been wrong all this time. Uh, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating discussion. And I know our listeners will find that both the complexity, but also the kind of interplay of the U.S. and Canadian systems fascinating. So thank, thank you both very, very much. I will add my thanks to Chris. I think he's got to scoot out, but I want to give you guys both the opportunity. If you, if there's anything that we haven't asked or anything you'd like to say by way of benediction or, or um, challenge each other, challenge us, uh, throw something else out there, please please feel free. Well, no, I, I, I just like to say that I think, you know, Tom's made a very good point, um, is that, you know, when, when we're thinking about what it's possible to do as regulators in terms of having the information and the knowledge to do things and to solve problems. I mean, it's very difficult. And so, you know, and we see this in the set aside discussion in Canada that we think, um, you know, we've, we've got this problem. We think we have this competitive problem. We think we can solve it with the set asides. And we don't think about all the unintended consequences that arise because of the, of the set asides. And that in fact, they may, you know, that they may not be beneficial. Their costs associated with them may be far larger than the problem that they were supposed to fix, right? So we've got imperfect markets versus imperfect regulation. You know, it's likely that the imperfect markets will solve themselves out, that the competitive process will address those issues. Whereas if we do a regulatory response, it may take forever or a very long time to correct our mistakes. And so our bias should be towards letting the markets work and let the markets find solutions to these problems. So, um, yeah, I appreciate that. And my my flippant way of, of expressing that thought is that governments do two things really well, nothing or overreact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and- I'm just going to add that I think that your discussion, uh, and particularly when it gets around to compare and contrast U.S. versus Canada, that's that's obviously a very fruitful way to go about your business. The uh, I mean, the joke that I was given when I went to Canada some years ago and regulators told me, you know, we look at the United States and we look at the UK and we, we choose the worst. Um, but uh, no, you, you, you know, you look around the world, you want to know what best practices are. You want to try to think for yourself as well, uh, because there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of folklore that, that might circulate, uh, you know, self-interested by uh, parties that are lobbying for better positions or by the regulators themselves. But uh Find out what experiments have been run. See see how things uh, seem to be working, and uh, you know try to uh, try to move forward. I know that in some areas, certainly Canada is ahead of the United States. And one of the things that we should be rightfully jealous of is the fact that there has been a um, I don't know if you call it privatization, but a uh, a reform of the um, aviation regulatory structure that's different from our uh, government run. Um, uh, Federal Aviation Administration, and there's a, a, a lot more uh, efficiency within the um, uh, Canadian uh, air travel um, passenger service uh, than as a result. And the United States has been uh, actually trying to move forward. Um, policymakers in both parties have been stymied so far, but uh, Canada is one of the models for how you can actually move forward and uh, have a, a more modern and uh, consumer-friendly and technology-friendly uh, regulatory structure. So we we need to learn from Canada. Maybe um, Canada can can pick up a few pointers by looking south. And I I applaud you on your efforts to try to do that. Thanks, Tom. Just on that point, Jeff, would you agree with the uh, proposition about Canada's uh, 
aviation regulations. Again, I'm very grateful because this is a, a, another topic for another podcast. And I promise you, Chris and I are going to get into that because we hadn't even thought about it, comparing and contrasting uh, the aviation regula- regulations. But but I was surprised to hear you say that, Tom, honestly, because uh, most Canadians that I talk to are pretty um, pretty grumpy about the state of competition um, in, in aviation uh, up there. And I have to be careful. Air Canada is a wonderful member of the Canadian American Business Council, and we love them. But, uh, yeah. Jeff, what's your what's your reaction just to Tom, just as we wrap up? I'm here? talking about airports, right? And so what we, we did, tw- so we had government-run airports. Um, needless to say, when the politicians were deciding to allocate their uh, money that they had available, they didn't invest in airports. Especially if I'm in Ottawa, I didn't invest in the Calgary Airport or the Vancouver Airport. And so we... Uh, privatized them, but we didn't really privatize them in the sense that we turned them into nonprofits and they're governed by a, a nonprofit board of directors and they have a long-term lease for the land and they're free to set fees. And so they have set fees to cover their investment. So um, they've invested in very nice airports in runways and all kinds of things so that the, the experience that you have as a passenger at the airport is nice, but you're paying for it. Um, and you know it, it, it kind of comes back to our cellular discussion. Uh, I think in, in airports and in cell phones, we are, in quotation marks, high price because we have high quality. And high quality involves a cost, and we're willing to pay that high price for that high quality. And so we can have a high price, high quality equilibrium, which I think we do in cell phones and we have in airports. Um, or you can have a low price, low quality equilibrium, uh, and we've been able to avoid that. Um, at least currently for airports. We certainly had that before, but now we, we moved away from it. And I'm hoping that we're able to maintain our high price, high quality um, cellular service equilibrium. Well, listen, on that note, let me just thank you again. This has been uh, illuminating for me. We're going to... Um, we're, we're going to put some links in the podcast episode notes uh, to your papers, uh, to things that you've published. Um, so we will follow up with you on that. And... Uh, and on behalf of Chris and 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 our colleagues at Canusa Street, thank you for making time uh, for this. We would love to have you back. Uh, we're glad for your inaugural uh, hazing, uh, Jeff Church. Uh, we hope we hope we can get you into the podcast habit. It's shocking to me that there aren't some twenty year olds in your life that haven't you know already gotten you there. But uh, let let this be the first. Very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scotty. Thanks so much. Thanks both of you. Bye, Tom. Bye bye. Take care. Well, Chris, another interesting, slightly wonky conversation, but a great way to understand more about something that's really practical. As as policy wonky as it is, it's practical for all of us. Connectivity, how we use um, the internet and our phones and our Zoom meetings and everything else. I, I thought it was to compare and contrast what each country is doing well, where we could learn from each other. I mean, all and having all those PhDs together in one podcast, holy moly, I thought it was terrific. Uh, it, it was, and it's one of those issues that I think illustrates something important that Canusa Street, as a podcast, I hope we'll get to periodically, which is that sometimes the issues aren't Canada versus the U.S. They're very technical issues in which Canadians and Americans really meet as peers, talking about what works, what doesn't work, what could we learn from each other, and then it gets pushed through our political institutions, which are different, obviously, and we have some different history and traditions. 
but we can learn so much from each other and and we often on the technical level you know are equals and we can agree and then it just it becomes a policy challenge but i thought it was fascinating to hear from both of them me too and you know because we had such experts such learned people on the topic i think maybe in the podcast notes for this episode we'll put their papers linked to the book linked to the articles i mean why not because if for, for those that want to really dive deeply into kind of Canada-U.S. policy differences and similarities on spectrum and on broadband and on things like that, why not? So um, we'll, we'll see if we can pull that one off. But I think I think maybe if, if our podcast can be a, a, a reference source, whether the issue is a trade issue like softwood lumber or it's a, an issue that's happening in the moment like the trucker blockade or foreign policy or something like this, uh, we want to be a resource for people, so um, so we'll see if we can put put those links in the podcast notes, and then we'll and then it'll be an experiment to see how many people actually download them. Well, I, I like it. It could be the Canusa Street Free Library. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Just open the box and see what people are getting rid of. Exactly, exactly, and it's right next to the you know the Haskell Opera House. So. Oh yeah, yes, Haskell Haskell. I- all right. Well, as always, it's great to see you, my friend. It's uh, great to see you. And uh, and thanks for another great day on Canusa Street. Thank you. All right. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.